And then next week we'll get into uh, the burial of Christ and maybe finish up the chapter by the grace of God. Um, so, those of you who've got your Bibles, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 23, we're going to pick up in verse 44 and stand with me and we'll read a few verses. Luke chapter 23, verse 44, and that was about the sixth hour. You remember what time that is? That's noon. And there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. The sun was darkened, the veil of the temple was torn in two, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, He glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breast and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these signs. Father, we're so grateful that we can come and we can worship you, Lord, today through song. Uh, Lord, the corporate singing of praises to your name. Lord, the corporate reading of your word. Lord, and the uh, corporate teaching of your word this morning. And so, Lord, we're just, we're just grateful. Lord, we ask that you would uh, teach us, Lord, by your word and by your spirit. We pray that you would encourage us in our walks with you. We pray that you would exhort us, Lord, stir us up to righteousness for your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Y'all can be seated. Well, you remember, uh, this this is a crucifixion day. And And I think it's probably an understatement to say it's been an awful day. You know, it began in the Garden of Gethsemane earlier that night. Jesus in there agonizing over the cup that he was about to bear. His Father's wrath being poured out upon him. What was due to you and me, what sinners deserved, was being poured out upon him. And he agonized over that to the point where he sweat great drops of blood. And as he surrendered to the will of his Father, he departed from the garden. No sooner they get out of the garden and he's met by this Roman cohort of hundreds of soldiers and Jewish leaders who had come out to arrest him on trumped-up charges. He wasn't paying, he was encouraging people not to pay taxes to Caesar, and he was going to overthrow the Roman government. And so he's taken into custody, he's endured three trials, two at the hand of the Jewish leaders, one at the hand of the, of the Roman leaders, the Roman government. Pilate has declared, I find no fault in this man at all. But yet, the people demanded that he be crucified. The Jewish leaders had, 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 had stirred them up to a riot level. And Pilate, not wanting to cause any trouble, not wanting to have his rulership removed from him, taken from him by Caesar, appeases the people. He capitulates to the, to the will of the people just to calm them down. And he gives them Jesus to be crucified. Remember, though, at the hands of both the Jewish leaders at the Jewish trial and then at the Roman trial, he has he is beaten, he is scourged, he is spat upon, he's got a crown of thorn pressed upon his brow. He has been 
just physically wiped out. He's endured much. And he's then had the cross beam strapped upon his back, upon his shoulders, and he's made to walk the distance from the Roman temp- or from the Jewish temple to, to Golgotha, to Calvary, to the place of the skull, to where he would be crucified, him and two others around him. And on the way there, beginning to buckle under the uh, physically, under all that he's endured, a man from the crowd, Simon, is called out to help him bear the weight of the cross. He didn't bear it for him, but he bore it with him. And you remember that there is when Simon plucked from the crowd meets Christ and the Lord saves him. And he gets to, the, gets to Calvary and there he is. Um, uh, the vertical beam is placed there. Jesus is nailed to the horizontal beam through the wrist and he is by rope most likely hoisted up on to the vertical beam, onto the vertical pole, and it's attached to the horizontal beam, and then his feet are nailed one on top of the other to the vertical beam. And then begins the long, agonizing, torturous process of death by crucifixion, death by asphyxiation, suffocation. And all along the way, Jesus ministers to people. He ministered to Simeon. He ministers to the thief who's there beside him, assures him, today you should surely be with me in paradise. Never so physically exhausted that he doesn't have time or the ability. He is the omnipotent. Never forget that when you see Jesus on the cross, you don't see this weak Savior, this weak, physically, you know, spent savior he is the omnipotent god he is fully god and he is fully man that's important as we get later on in the text this morning i want you to remember that that he is an omnipotent god and you remember last week we began to look at the miracles that accompanied the the death of jesus and and that these weren't just some random you know supernatural phenomena that happened to coincide with you know his crucifixion but they had divine purpose And Luke wants us to understand that they have divine purpose. The gospel writers want us to understand that. that, And the first one was the the three hours of darkness from from noon till till 3 p.m. You remember he was on the cross at about 9 a.m. that morning. But at noontime, when it's supposed to be, you know, the, 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 the sun is at zenith, its highest point, that all of a sudden the sun shines no more. And the Jews would have understood that. They would have understood from Amos and from Zephaniah that when that darkness came upon them, that that was not Satan having his way with Jesus, but that was the Father pouring out his divine wrath upon Jesus. This was the cup that Jesus agonized over in the Garden of Gethsemane that he didn't want to drink if he didn't have to. There's any other way, Father. But he did drink that cup, and it was the cup of his father's wrath that should have been poured out on you and me. And for three hours, it was poured out upon Jesus. It had divine purpose. This was not a solar eclipse. It was, we talked about last week, well documented in history, and I'm not going to go back over all that. But he's suffering the punishment that you and I deserve. 
Well, how do we know that the father's wrath was satisfied? That he was his his that he his wrath was appeased. Well, we know by one fact that the darkness didn't last forever. At three p.m., the darkness ended. It was it was done. It was only three hours of darkness, and so his wrath was satisfied in the perfect work of Christ on the cross. But another way that we know that his wrath was satisfied is the next miracle that occurred. You remember Luke tells us that the, the, the veil of the temple, the, the curtain in the temple, you remember that the temple had basically two chambers in it, two rooms. You walked into the temple, which you and I couldn't have done because we're Gentiles, but even if you were a Jew, you couldn't have walked into the temple. You could have been in the outer courtyards, but only the priests could go into the temple. And only certain priests could go into the uh, the, the first room, which was called the the holy place, and in it was the uh, you know the the seven branch candlestick, the um, table of showbread, the altar of incense, those things, and they would go in daily and they would take care of those things. But then there was another room called the holy of holies. It was a smaller room, and there was this curtain, this veil that separated it from the holy place from the holy of holies. And only one person was allowed in there, only one time of year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where he would go in with the blood of a goat that had been sacrificed. He dare not go in that room without blood. And he would sprinkle some of it upon the mercy seat, the the lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And there he would make atonement for the sins of the people for yet one more year. It covered their sins, but it didn't remove their sins. It didn't cleanse their sins. All these sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Christ on the cross. And so Mark tells us and Matthew tells us that at the very moment that Jesus died, the very moment that he took his last breath, that was the moment that the veil in the temple was rent, that it was torn. And they tell us that it was torn, not bottom to top, but from top to bottom. You remember in Herod's temple, this wouldn't have been you know, the tabernacle, this wouldn't have been Solomon's temple, this wouldn't have been the rebuilt temple that Ezra came back and, and rebuilt, or Zerubbabel helped and all that. This would have been Herod's temple. It would have been a greatly expanded temple. And still not huge when we think of you know, edifices and big structures and things like that. Uh, the, the curtain of the temple was 60 feet high. 30 feet wide and one inch thick. Now that's a thick curtain. And the fact that it was torn is quite a miracle. Now, I'm not an engineer by any stretch of the imagination, but we have several engineers here in the church. So I contacted one this week, and I asked them, what is the, what's the tensile strength of the what would you estimate the tensile strength of the veil in the, the temple, the curtain in the temple, being one inch thick? And, you know, we know that it was made out of purple and red and, and blue threads and uh, had embroidered with cherubim. You know, give me a, an approximation. Now, tensile strength is the maximum stress that a material can withstand while being stretched or pulled before failing, breaking, or tearing. So he estimated that the tensile strength of that one-inch thick fabric was probably somewhere between ten to 15,000 pounds. So that means for you and me who don't understand all those terms, 
That means that if an average male weighs 190, and I'm obviously not an average male, I'm above average, I'm probably obese then by modern standards. But if some of you, who's 190 pounds? Which one of you? Joseph, you, you 190? 180, okay, you're close to it. So if a bunch of Josephs, how many Josephs would it take to actually begin to cause that fabric you know, to, to create a stress point where it begin to tear. It would take, if, if, if the tensile strength is 10 to 15,000 pounds, it would take somewhere between 52 to 78 Josephs hanging on that thing, which you shouldn't do, especially without parental permission. But that's just to give you an idea of what, what a miracle this was and that it was torn, you know, obviously it would take somebody, you would have to have, you'd all have to be on a ladder, then you'd have to sneak in, and the priest wouldn't be able to see you do that. So this was quite a miracle. But, but the whole divine purpose of why uh, the, the curtain was, was torn, and especially from top to bottom, it signified that God had made access. A holy God had made access to sinful man, to be reconciled to him. It signified that no more sacrifices was needed, that, that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. As he would say in John's gospel on the cross, it is finished, it's done. It, it meant that the Old Testament sacrificial system had come to an end. No more goats, no more sheep, no more bulls, no more blood. As we sing this morning, it's the blood of Jesus. Well, there's a third miracle that occurred that I'd like for you to see this morning also. And I'm going to jump down. I'm going to bypass verse 46. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But look at verse 47. This is a third miracle. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together that, to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts and returned. But all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. You know, different people respond to the cross in different ways. Not everybody responds the same. And I'm sure we've all had that experience as we've talked to people about the gospel and about Christ. The crowd here, in verse 48, it says the whole crowd. They came together to this site, and, and the Greek there, word there for, for they came together to this site, it's the word spectacle. It's almost as if they, they had come there uh, to be entertained by some you know, bloody display of cruel violence, as was common in that, in that you know, Roman era, you know, the, the Colosseums and all that. And there was this, um, you know, this... sick, perverted pleasure that was derived by seeing these bloody spectacles. And it's almost as if, they, you know, th these people, this wasn't the first crucifixion they had been to. And it was almost like there was a glee, an excitement about going there and seeing this. And, and there was a disappointment that followed it. So the whole crowd, they came together to this site, to this spectacle, to, uh, seeing what had been done. And they beat their breasts and returned. So they... You know, they, it was this, instead of coming to get their sinful pleasures, they went home filled with 
fear and maybe even sorrow, maybe even guilt as they went home, as they began to ponder this three hour of darkness and God must not be happy with us and maybe not fully understand everything. But, but I would imagine that it began to set the scene for many of these when the gospel was preached in the book of Acts in Jerusalem that many of these who were there that the Lord probably saved. And so the crowd, that's how they respond. His followers in verse 49, it says, but all of his acquaintances and the women. You, you ever notice with Luke? Luke is the only gospel writer that continually points out women. He is the gospel to women. He's always elevating women. Always talking about the women and, and how, how the Lord's compassion, his care for them. And these women had followed him all the way from the Galilean region, all the way from the northern part of Israel. And they stood at a distance watching these things. Still not quite sure what to make of it all. Still not quite understanding what it all meant. But they kind of just pondered those things in their heart. But soon their faith would become sight at the resurrection. But one man. One man here was so deeply impressed by what he had seen and what he had heard that, that he couldn't keep silent. Notice what he says there in verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. So what was he saying? He said Jesus was a righteous man. He had, he had been there for this whole thing. He had probably led Jesus from Pilate's Praetorium, there at the, at the Roman, you know, the Fortress Antonio, there at the Temple Mount. He had probably led him and been part of the entourage that took him up to, to Calvary. He had been there for the whole crucifixion. And he had watched the way that Jesus had interacted with the women who were weeping. And had watched the way that he interacted with, with Simon. And he had watched the way that he had interacted with even, you know, those who had mocked him and, and sped upon him. And he had watched the way that he talked to the thief on the cross and shared the gospel with him. He's watching the way that he's dying. And he's hearing all these things. And what was his conclusion? Surely this was a righteous man. What was he saying? Same thing that Pilate said. I find no fault in this man. He's, he's, he's innocent. He, he has, this is, no, this is no sinner. This man doesn't deserve to be on the cross like the two that are being crucified on either side of him. He was a righteous man. He was, he was a man that has done no wrong. And certainly, this has to be another miracle. Not, not a physical miracle like the three hours of darkness. Not, not a physical miracle like uh, the veil in the temple being torn top to bottom. But this is a spiritual miracle. A spiritual mir miracle that occurs when a sinner's heart is, is transformed by the supernatural power of God. When, when, when the, a spiritual miracle, when the, when the hand of God peels back the scales takes off the cataracts of, of a sinner's eyes to help him to see. He could not have come to this conclusion on his own that Jesus was a righteous man. But God initiated. God intervened. God came down and, and, and invaded this man, if you will, in a gracious way and opened his eyes to see and his ears to hear who this man really was, who Christ was. 
And he did this by the supernatural power of God. You think about this. According to, according to the laws of human nature, the Bible teaches us that the, that the sinful heart does not want to worship God. It does not want to praise God. Uh, the sinful heart does not want to obey God. Due to the fall of what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they sinned, from that moment on when sin first entered in, man's heart was bent toward sin. It was bent toward disobedience. It was bent not toward praising God, not toward worshiping God. It was bent toward exalting ourselves. And ever since that first sin, Scripture teaches that sinful man is hostile toward God. We are enemies of God. That's what, that's what Paul teaches in Romans 8, 7. He says the sinful mind is hostile, or it's at enmity to God. It's hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. And notice what he says, nor can it do so. The inability of man to worship God, the inability of fallen man, sinful man, we don't even have the ability to worship God, to praise Him or to obey Him, besides the fact that we don't want to in our fallen state. And the fact that this man comes to this conclusion that Jesus is a righteous man is a spiritual miracle that only an omnipotent God can do. This man didn't just wake up and say, today, I think I'm going to figure it out that this guy is a righteous man. Today I'm going to become a worshiper of God. This man was hostile toward God. He was an enemy of God. It's true of, it's true of this Roman centurion. You think about this. Just what an enemy of God he was. First of all, I want you to understand, he's a Roman centurion. This is no mere foot soldier. He's not just like I was in the military, a little peon airman, you know, being ordered around by those who knew more than I did, which was everybody. This guy is a what? What, what is his role? He's a centurion. That means that he is in charge of hundreds. Two, three hundred, I don't know. But he was in charge of many people. He's not just some innocent bystander to this whole crucifixion ordeal. He is responsible for what's taking place here. Whether he took part in those actual things or whether he made sure they got carried out, he is guilty. He was a part of it. The fashioning of the crown of thorns that was, that was pushed into the brow of Christ's forehead. Uh, when, when they bowed down, the Roman soldiers bowed down mockingly and they said, you know, hail, king of the Jews. And they spat on him, spat on him. They struck him with a reed repeatedly. They punched him in the face. They, they scourged him and ripped the flesh from his back. They, they, they were responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross. They, they, they cast lots for his clothes. Is that not a man who is hostile toward God? That is a man who is an enemy of God. He has no affection for God. He has no inclination toward him. He's not bent to worship him or to praise him. He's bent toward cursing him. This man was hostile toward God, just as, and we look at this Roman centurion, and we somehow think that he is worse than we are. But he's not. 
Paul puts us all in the same camp. If we're sinners and we're not saved by the grace of God, then we're at a place where we are enemies of God. We're hostile toward him. Every one of us are that way. Maybe to, you know, maybe to lesser or greater degrees, no doubt. But that's the condition of the, of the sinful human heart until the Holy Spirit comes into our minds and he comes into our hearts and miraculously takes our, our fallen bent away from God and he bends us toward, he changes us, he takes out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that is no longer bent toward disobedience no longer bent toward cursing God, no longer bent toward being the enemy of God, but bent toward worshiping Him, bent toward wanting to know Him, bent toward having relationship with Him. Mark tells us that the Roman centurion also said, besides that Jesus was a righteous man, he said, truly, this man is the Son of God. That takes a supernatural miracle of God coming in and changing a heart. And as I said, he didn't just go up to the cross that day and say, today I'm going to be a follower of Christ. None of us do that. He didn't say, today I'm, I'm going to become a follower of Jesus. Paul tells us that there are none who seek God, no, not one. Man, fallen man doesn't, make the, doesn't take the initiative to follow Christ. It is God who takes the initiative. He must take the initiative to conquer our hearts. And that's what Scripture teaches. Luke 19.10 says that, 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 that he has come, speaking of Jesus, he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He is the initiator who comes in to our hearts to incline us toward him. To me, it's an absolute miracle that one of the very men who's responsible for crucifying Jesus confessed him as the innocent, blameless, righteous Son of God. Now, what does that mean in practical terms to you and me? That means that if you believe the miracle of the conversion of the centurion, that you believe that God can convert the most hostile sinner, the, the most vile of sinners, the most wicked of hearts. God, because he is omnipotent, he can do that. That nothing is too difficult for the omnipotent God. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that if you're here this morning and you've got a spouse who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, and you just think they're too far gone, you say, no, the Roman centurion wasn't too far gone. The Lord's hand, Scripture says, is not too short that it can't save. In other words, he is all-powerful. That means this morning, if you've got a child, whether still at home or out of the home, and they don't know the Lord as Savior, as Redeemer, as, forgive, as, as the one who forgives them, that they're not too far gone. The Lord is omnipotent. The salvation doesn't depend on you and me. It depends on him. His ability. We, have, we, we, are, we are unable. But nothing is too difficult for him. 
So we have a great hope because of the Roman centurion. Well, so while the sky was still black and at the same moment that the veil of the temple was being torn, Jesus utters his last words. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I want you to notice a couple of very important things about his last words. First, I want you to notice how he uttered his words. I never really thought about this until I was again studying it last week. And, and it just kind of just stood out to me as a, as a huge, uh, you know, just revelation. Something I had never really noticed before. But it says that he cried out with what type of a voice? Loud voice. Why, why is that important? Why does Luke want us to know that Jesus cried out with a loud voice? Because I think he wants us to know that, for one, it would be impossible for a crucified... Think about this. A crucified victim on the cross. What are, they, what are they doing? Every moment they are struggling to try to get their next breath, right? I mean, every breath is an effort. They are slowly but surely dying of asphyxiation. They, they are suffocating. They, they're they're going to die. They, they can't breathe. So they, they're pushing up. On the ends of their toes, they're pushing up to try to get another breath. And they're not pushing up very far. And they're not getting very much breath in. It's labored. It's difficult. A crucified victim couldn't take a deep breath. There was no oxygen. There was no strength. He was barely, a crucified victim would barely be able to whisper as the, as the hours went on. But Jesus here is strong. Do you see that? He is strong. He cries out with a loud voice. He is triumphant. Jesus didn't die because he couldn't breathe. The cause of death was not asphyxiation, suffocation. He didn't die from the physical trauma of crucifixion. When did he die? Why? He died when his work was done. That's when he died. Remember he said in John's Gospel, he said it's finished. The work's done. It's over. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. He said the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. Now that's important. Those aren't just flippant words. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. In other words, he says the, the, the power to end my life, to be done with this life, I and I alone have that yes the Romans and the Jews are responsible for putting me here. Yes, Pilate, you've ordered the crucifixion. Yes, yes to all that. But I have, and Jesus alone, because he is God, has the ability to lay down his life. Now, you and I don't have that ability. You know, sometimes disease takes our life. Sometimes a heart attack. Or sometimes, an act, sometimes it's an accident that, that takes our life. But we don't lay it down. It's taken from us. But Jesus here laid it down. He said, I have the power to lay it down. They have the power to what? Take it up again. He said in John chapter 19, so it says when, this is John speaking of when Jesus was on the cross, he said when Jesus had received the sour wine, 
He said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. Crucifixion didn't take it from him. Think about this. Crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, well, any type of crucifixion, regardless of whether the Romans or whoever did it, it was meant to be a long, torturous, excruciating, agonizing ordeal. It was meant to last a long time. It was meant to make its victims suffer this horrendous death. Death by crucifixion, on average, took two to three days. And if they wanted to hasten it, if they wanted to shorten the time that a, that a victim was on the cross, they would come along, the Roman soldiers would, and they would take a club, and they would break their legs so that they could no longer lift themselves up to catch a breath. They didn't have to do that with Jesus. But it was meant to be long, two to three days. How long was Jesus on the cross? Six hours. Nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. That's all. A really a short amount of time in comparison to how long it was designed to be. And when the work that the Father had given him was complete, Jesus surrendered. He gave up his life. No one took it from him. He didn't die of asphyxiation, suffocation. When the work was done, that's when he died. Now, is that difficult to imagine? Is that difficult to believe? Not if we believe and what the Scripture says about Jesus. At the end of the beginning, John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was, was God, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That He is eternal. How do you take, how do you, how does a, how do you take the life from someone who is eternal? You, you can't. You don't. How, how do you take the life from someone who is infinite? Has no beginning and no end. Yes, in His humanity, there was death. But it was only... When he as God said, the work the Father gave me is done. And he laid it down. The second thing I want you to notice is what his last words were. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You you remember that the other Gospels tell us that prior to that, while the three hours of darkness are going on and while the Father's wrath is being poured out upon Jesus, you remember at some point in that he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not like, my God, my God, like he's angry. We see a couple, it's the only time that Jesus ever says, my God, my God, in the Gospels. We we never see that again. But he does say things, you know, he, he does use repetition for a point. You remember, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who stones the prophets and kills those who are sent. How, how often I wanted to gather you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. And why did he say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem? Why did he say it twice? It was, it was the idea of, of, of a, uh, a tenderness for Israel, but also a disappointment that they rejected him. You, you remember he said similar thing to, to Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. He says, you're worried and you're troubled about many things. I know that you want me to get Mary to go in the kitchen and help you. And that bothers you. You're troubled by that. You're fretting about it. Jesus wasn't telling her, 
Martha, would you just put the, put the dishes down, put the, put, quit cooking food and get in here and sit down with me? He wasn't telling her that. He wasn't telling her to leave the kitchen. He was saying, that's your season in life. That's your station in life. That's where you're supposed to be right now is in the kitchen. Mary's in here. That's fine. Do that with joy. Don't do that with grumbling and complaining. He's not trying to get her, get her to come in there and sit down. But he's saying it with, with a tenderness. Martha, Martha. And also with a disappointment. Martha, you're complaining. You're worried. You're troubled about many things. And I think the same is true here when he's saying, my God, my God. It's a tenderness. My God. It's a disappointment. What's the disappointment? Why have you forsaken me? Why, this intimate fellowship that you and I have had for eternity... You've had to turn your back on me for a moment while you pour out your wrath on me. But he doesn't stay in that place of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When the wrath is complete and when his work is done, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the Jews who were there at the cross, they would, have, they would have known exactly what he meant by that. He's quoting from Psalm 31, verse 5, where David says, probably this is when Absalom has chased him, his own son has chased him out of Jerusalem. And he says to, to the Lord, he says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord of God of truth. Now, Jesus takes that prayer of David, that petition of David, and he makes a couple of changes to it as he applies it to himself. First, he added something. David simply said, into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And so there's this, it's like he's saying, I was forsaken. Your wrath was poured out upon me. But now that the work is done, that sweet communion, that sweet fellowship that, 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 that we've enjoyed in the Trinity with the, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father for eternity past has now been restored. Suffering is over. Fellowship is reestablished. But he also left something out. David said, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. But Jesus says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. He doesn't say, You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. Why? Because Jesus doesn't need redemption, does he? He doesn't need salvation. Who needs redemption? Who needs salvation? We do. So there's no need for him to say that. He is the Redeemer. And his work was done. His work of going to the cross and redeeming all those in eternity, all those from in the past who had trusted in him and all those in the future who would trust in him. And so as he came to the end of his sin-bearing work on the cross of Calvary, I love what he says. Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. He was confident that death was not the end for him. He believed that there was life beyond the grave. And in his words, there's great comfort and great confidence and great hope for you and I. As we This is a great way to die. You remember Stephen said the same thing when he was stoned, didn't he? He says, Father, into, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isn't that where our trust is? Or do we need to just hang on a little bit longer hoping that we can live a good enough life to please God? Or is our trust really in Him? This is a good way to die. His trust was well placed 
in the Father. He believed that his spirit would survive. He believed to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. And so I'll leave you with this question this morning. Do you know for sure that when you die that you're going to go to heaven? Have you believed on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in his finished work? Are you still trying to finish the work on your own? Are you his child who is safe in his arms? Or are you his enemy on whom his wrath abides? Let's stand and pray. Father, Lord, we trust you to make Take those questions and cause, Lord, everyone in this room to consider them, to test themselves to see whether or not they be in the faith. Lord, to examine themselves, to know whether or not you are truly their Lord and Savior. And that, God, that those who aren't confident, Lord, those who are unsure, that, God, that you would remind them that you are a God who delights in saving the lost, You are a God who went to great lengths to reconcile sinners to yourself by your work on the cross. You are a God who delights to show mercy to thousands. And we ask that you would do that for the glory of your namesake. And all God's people said, amen, amen.